Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. This is the Zookeeper podcast where we take you behind the scenes talking to professionals in the industry about their stories, words of wisdom and journey so far to get to where they are today, really showing you what it takes to be a zookeeper. All views throughout the podcast shared are of those speaking alone and in no way reflect the collections they work for. So please come along for the journey, enjoy the ride and thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. My name's James Dennis, I'm your presenter, and today we're talking all things organisations within the industry, and who better to talk to than Kerry and Tatchley, all the way from Biaza. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, James. It's lovely to meet you. Yeah, it's really great to have you on. Now, if you want to introduce officially to our lovely listeners exactly who you are, where you come from, and what title you hold. Yes, yeah, so um, as you said, Kerry and Tatchley, I am currently a senior manager at Biaza, and for those that don't know what that stands for, it's the British and Irish Association of Zoos and Aquariums. That role is kind of, it's really varied. I'm one of two senior managers at Biaza. We're quite a small team, so the two senior managers pretty much cover all the kind of mission areas, uh, animal welfare, animal care, research, conservation, education. Um, I am more on the latter side of that. So I do have animal welfare in my remit, but mostly also research and education. And then I also have just a few small extras like uh, working on accreditation for us at the moment and also sector professionalisation, which is a really big way of saying training in CPD. Um, In terms of where I come from, so um, I've had a bit of a mixed Mixed background, I've been been all over the place. I definitely didn't set out to be working in zoos initially. I was kind of uh, really into wildlife as a kid, very much a kind of scientist at heart. So I kind of set off to university to do a degree in zoology at Bristol. Uh, and I actually used to get really annoyed because everyone was always like, oh, so is that like a degree in being a zookeeper? And I was like, no, it's, that's not what it is. So it's a little bit ironic that that's sort of actually where I've ended up going. But yeah, I don't think I had a very clear plan for what I was doing. I just knew I really liked the kind of science side of, of animals. So I, I kind of went that way. And then when I graduated, was like a little bit lost for a while, ended up working in a nursery for a year, just a little bit like of an odd one, but actually did give me some skills that have proven quite useful in getting my zoo jobs down the line. And then uh, saved up money doing that to do my master's. I did a master's in animal behaviour at Exeter University, which had a lot of input from the team at Paynton. Um, And that's kind of where my interest in zoo things really grew from, particularly the kind of animal welfare, which at that point um, was taught by Vicky Melfi. And it was just like, I absolutely loved it, animal cognition as well. So that would kind of Set my direction. Um, I did my research project at Paynton on the Hamadryas baboons, looking at um, self-directed behaviour and social interactions around Easter cycling um, and contributing to their like massive. I mean, at that point, it was 11 years worth of data they had. So it, it must be they, they might even have made it to 20 now. I can't quite remember how, how long ago that was. So it's a huge data set that they have on the baboons. And um, so it kind of contributed to that. And then that was really like I was really quite lucky that they advertised a, an internal only job, which was actually the presenter role at, at Living Coasts. Um, and because I was a student with them, I was allowed to apply to that as an internal candidate. And that was kind of my first paid zoo job. And since then, I've sort of bounced around a lot. I've done bits of education roles, bits of research roles, a teeny bit of keepering, but I'm definitely not like I would not pretend to be a keeper. It's very much been an, an add on to, to other things that I've done. And then obviously eventually settled at Biaza. And actually I've done, I don't, I've lost count of how many job titles at Biaza I've had on the journey to get my like 
permanent full-time role. It probably took a good sort of three or four years to get to that point, including two maternity cover roles with a, a gap in the middle where I then went back to um, to Scotland. And somewhere along the lines, I also squeezed a PhD in there as well. So I have a PhD from Stirling University, which was um, ecology and economics. So not very zooey, um, but it was about wildlife impacts of small wind turbines. So yeah, I've been, been a bit all over the place. So I've kind of lived in lots of different parts of the UK at this point and actually also did some kind of volunteer research stuff in South Africa at the Neisner Elephant Park as well, helping them set up a captive elephant research unit. So it's all, it's quite varied. Yeah, absolutely. I think exactly right. And it's really nice to hear, and in a really sad way almost, the collections from the past and, and sadly some which didn't make it through COVID, such as Living Coast, coming back up in memory through stories from keepers in the modern day and our community as a whole. So no, really, really nice to hear um, those collections still being spoke about. Now, the next question I've got for you is advice. Do you have any for maybe your younger self, for anyone listening in from your journey so far, from what you've learned from this community and maybe what you could give back? Yeah, definitely. I mean, lots, actually. I wouldn't pretend that I'm that old, but certainly you build up quite a lot of experience and kind of lots of things where you think, oh, actually, I wish I'd learned that a little bit earlier. Probably two big ones for me in terms of those looking to kind of start zoo careers. Um, I would say that flexibility and that jumping around of jobs and being willing to move about and willing like I've taken on quite a lot of kind of temporary contracts like maternity covers seasonal roles in order to build up my experience and that's definitely helped and it also meant that I built up a network quite quickly of people because you're working in lots of different places with lots of different people so I think that flexibility is a big one and I know that's tricky advice because there's an element of privilege to being able to do that and I did some semi-crazy things not that crazy compared to some stories I know of, of things other people have done to get where they are in their careers but things like after I did my um, PhD in Scotland obviously I was living in Scotland my partner was living in Scotland and then I ran out of PhD money so I needed a job and finished the PhD so I had a seasonal job at London Zoo that was part-time some of the time full-time some of the time so I was kind of commuting between Scotland and London which luckily I'm from London and my mum was still there so I could live at my mum's house and also writing my PhD at the same time um, and the same with my first biosa job actually as well like we were still very much living in Scotland my my partner is a former zookeeper so he was working at, at Edinburgh Zoo at the time and I was working for Biaza who were at that point based in London Zoo again so there's been been some crazy juggling and long distance relationships to make things work career-wise which not everyone could do obviously but it's definitely worked for me and has definitely kind of helped me jump forwards in at times kind of um to to get onto those kind of next stage jobs that I wanted to do the other thing for me I would say is that I've had to work quite hard to really remember to stop and enjoy what I'm doing at the moment and it's not so much true right now like I I love my job right now like I am very aware of how much I enjoy working for Biaza so it's not really a current issue but I think maybe when I was a bit younger and working some of those short-term contracts which obviously aren't ideal you've got some worries about what's going to happen next how you're going to keep paying your bills when that contract comes to an end and that kind of stuff I think sometimes I forgot like I was so focused on what am I going to do next? How like how am I going to get to the next job? How am I going to make this work? How am I going to get to the kind of permanent job? Like you don't always appreciate actually the like incredible privilege and opportunity that comes with working in this sector. Like it's it's a hard sector to work in for sure. It's got plenty of challenges, but there's also 
loads of really great things, including, of course, working with some really passionate, excellent people and the animals themselves as well. And I think it's definitely something that I wish I'd kind of paid attention to a little bit sooner to enjoy where I was at rather than just constantly worrying about what was going to come next. Some really great advice there. Now, let's delve straight into it, shall we? Biaza, what is it? What is going on? What are they doing to help this community and, and this workforce move forwards as a collective? Um, over to you. You're the best person to talk through for this. Yeah, so, I mean, to be honest, it's, it's probably doing almost everything that you could think of. But yeah, masses of stuff that people wouldn't necessarily be aware of if they're not involved. So, I mean, there's the kind of obvious things that we do. So we have the policies which set the kind of standards for the membership and in lots of ways kind of for the the UK and Irish zoo sector because there's a lot of like backwards and forwards between our policies and then the zoo licensing standards, which when they update those, they obviously then look at what ours say and they kind of we kind of end up building on top of each other um so there's a lot of kind of this setting arguably world leading in some areas best practice standards for the sector that's clearly a huge part of what we do and that focuses primarily on those kind of key mission areas that i that i mentioned so the animal care obviously being kind of right at the center of it all but then the conservation research and and education but one thing that we do i think people are starting to get maybe a bit more awareness of because we've talked about it a lot more and we've built it so much more as this kind of public affairs and policy work, which probably doesn't automatically sound that exciting to maybe to zookeepers working on the ground. But in practice, it's very relevant. So there's quite a lot of legislation. Well, I was going to say there's a lot of legislation currently working its way through the UK government, for example, although actually the biggest of those has just been, been dropped. Um, so that, for example, was the Kept Animals Bill, which was this sort of mishmash animal welfare bill that had lots of different things it had lots of stuff around like you know domestics in terms of puppy smuggling um, and also some farm stuff and livestock transporting but it did have a couple of like really important bits for, for zoos including um stuff that changed the way the standards were going to work in terms of particularly kind of making the conservation education and research elements of our zoo licensing standards uh, much more kind of detailed um, and kind of really raising those expectations of what you have to do in those areas um, and then there was also some stuff around for example primates as pets um, which although you wouldn't naturally associate that with zoos obviously pets could have quite a broad kind of definition it was never going to include zoos itself but within biota we have members who are private holders of animals that are part of the european breeding programs for example who potentially could be pulled into that definition you know they would never say that what they do is keep is keep pets but legal definitions and what we do in practice is is obviously not always quite the same thing um so the kept animals bill we've spent lots of time working on for example lots of kind of lobbying huge amounts of writing letters to mps and ministers having meetings with MPs and ministers, and I can't pretend that I did this. A big, We have a dedicated public affairs uh, team member now called Andy, who, who very much leads on this, as of course does Joe, our CEO. But then also like holding parliamentary events. So we have a parliamentary reception, but we also run the all-party parliamentary group for zoos and aquariums, which has been pretty vocal recently, pretty much since um, pandemic times when a lot of this kind of lobbying public affairs work really kicked off. Um, so now there's a real thing of looking at, okay, what, what happens next without this kept animals bill? How, what happens with the standards? How are they going to implement the standards? What are going to be, are there any alternative kind of legal mechanisms for them to bring some of those changes into place? Because overall, we're very supportive of the kind of updates and standards, albeit we wouldn't 
like some changes made to the kind of draft that came out. And that in itself is another huge bit of our work. So kind of feeding into the DEFRA zoos policy team. They're obviously the team that looks after kind of zoo licensing for the UK and their equivalents across the devolved nations who primarily will also use those same standards, but then also in uh, the Irish system as well, which obviously has its own licensing, but quite similar to our licensing. So there's also that kind of working with all of the different government departments, which can be kind of tricky because they sometimes get on and they sometimes don't. They will have different ways of slightly like of mechanisms for doing things. You have to learn a lot of different systems, but as well as the kind of the standards themselves, obviously policy focuses recently for us have been things like Brexit and the animal movements like we're still seeing huge impacts from brexit on on lots of that work so and um, our other senior manager nikki does huge amounts of work both in terms of trying to convince governments to put different things in place to make it a bit easier but also kind of hold, hand holding and using our, our kind of defra and apha contacts to try and help speed up individual transport cases where where we can especially where there's kind of an animal welfare need because there, there have been examples of welfare being impacted by not being able to move animals avian influenza has been another massive one we're in the middle of what is probably the biggest outbreak of avian influenza that we've had globally. And obviously we've seen it spread this year beyond birds and into um, mammals. And we've had a number of zoos have um, have it on site. So we've done a lot of work supporting them, but also um, Nikki Blesser at times, I think was going to about 20 government AI meetings a week, basically because so much of AI, of course, when government talks about it, they're thinking about poultry and very large scale industry. So just that work of making sure that actually they remember all of the legislation and guidance they put out impacts on our sector and it, it needs to be practical for our sector and that the challenges are completely different. Obviously, there's a big difference between the kind of, it sounds pretty cynical, but the, the value of a poultry like that's going into the food industry versus a very conservation important species and making sure that that's recognised. And there were some definite challenges along the way, but we pretty much got to a point where certainly there isn't like an automatic hull position from government in zoos. And actually, like we've had recent cases that aren't even an automatic closure of site. Um, so hopefully we've made some some big impacts there in terms of how that works. And we would definitely be expecting AI to continue to to be a challenge in the next season. They seem to last for a few years when you have these big outbreaks. So probably this coming winter unfortunately we'll probably see see it again and it's it's definitely still causing there's, there's news headlines today in fact about um things happening on the other side of the world at the moment so a lot of those birds will migrate back and we'll see it coming back so yeah lots more to be done there still as well as all of the policy stuff we obviously have all of the kind of more directly targeted at keepers things that we do so all of the kind of training workshops all of the husbandry resources and all of the networking groups like the the facebook forums and things like that 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 pretty much all run more or less kind of by keepers for keepers and obviously there's someone in the office and usually me or nikki that's kind of responsible for, for looking after them and steering those groups but generally it's it's the keepers on the ground that are kind of steering the direction of those and deciding what the priorities are for those groups so it's all of those things and and with them it's very much a case of you kind of get out of it what you put into it so the more involved that you choose to become in that work and generally there's lots of different ways that you can get involved the more 
you'll be able to get out of it. And also equally, the more you tell us what you need, the more we can do that for you. But yeah, hopefully there's pl- plenty of things happening kind of on that scale. And then a couple of other big things for us at the moment are um, campaigns. So we've always kind of run campaigns, things like Love Your Zoo Week have existed for a long time, but we haven't really had a dedicated person looking after them. So about a year ago, we brought Maria into the team and that, that's a big chunk of her of her role and like she does a, a lot of other kind of comm support work as well um so she's been working to really kind of revitalize those and increase their impact and give them like a little bit more of a brand in terms of public awareness so that they kind of meet uh, have an impact on the public a little bit more but also um actually look at widening how they can be useful for our members including um, definitely the keepers as well so things like love your zoo week very much still still exist and um, we've actually just just had one not too long ago um, but there's been a whole load of new campaigns brought in as well and some of those were suggestions from keepers and um, so we now have them um, like in the kind of october half termy bit um a sort of the original one um was basically about venomous animals but it's like a slot where we're trying to kind of raise the profile of maybe some of the less loved taxa and make sure they get their their time in the spotlight. So I think nocturnal animals is the focus for this year, um, but we're definitely open to suggestions of, of other taxa that we should be doing that for um, in future years. Um, and then other ones like Spotted on Site has had this massive revamp to become a whole citizen science project that we've started with, with the keepers and the, the zoo staff themselves to really get this sort of evidence base of actually just how much native wildlife there is on our sites. Like it's not just the animals that we are caring for within our zoos and aquariums but actually we're also managing quite large habitats in terms of our sites and for the benefit of our local wildlife too so really starting to kind of build up this picture of what's living on our sites and the aim with that is to then also expand it out to and being public facing as well so we've been running competitions uh for for members to see who can uh who can see the most different species on their sites um, and then we're hoping next year that that will be a public competition as well so there's a few things there's there's lots more some really interesting stuff thank you so much for sharing all of that with us now we're going to head into the big questions as part of this podcast episode where we tackle some of the larger topics from the industry and try and find some of the answers um usually untold now with biaza to kick us off then do you feel you're hitting all levels of the industry from the owners, the curators, down to the head keepers, the senior keepers, and at ground level, the qualified keepers, the trainee keepers, and the students? Oh, that's a really good question. I would say optimistically, yes, a lot of the time, but not all the time. Like, I think it's something we're very aware of within the team. It's definitely something we talk about a lot. I think sometimes it's maybe the people in the middle that we miss a little bit more um, because I think everyone like we have quite a lot of you know we are one of the the co-owners of the Dumza qualification we're involved in the creation of the the keeper and aquarist apprenticeship Um, I am involved in things like the the t-level development which you may or may not have heard of but it's another new kind of qualification that will sit alongside sort of a level um, but with a more practical element so I've been involved in working with the institute for apprenticeships and technical education which is the government department that looks after that and also City and Guild who have been uh, who got the tender to develop it. So I think we do quite a lot for that kind of entry level kind of keeper and getting that initial training in place and the opportunities to kind of build those those initial skills. And we also have things like careers guides and, and that kind of stuff available. And then we obviously have quite a lot that's kind of 
very senior because that's probably the the more the level that our annual conference is at and um, obviously our trustees are typically kind of CEOs and things like that and we sometimes have more contact from the CEOs because they're typically the people that are making the decisions about whether to be a member or not be a member you know you're kind of Keepers on the ground often don't get to make that decision um, in terms of bios and membership. But sometimes I think in the middle, like we have all the people that are engaged and that are involved and are sitting on a committee or a working group or a focus group or a subgroup and are doing those things. But I think outside of that, sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to make sure that we're kind of offering something to everyone. But we're definitely aware of it. You know, we kind of try and evolve all the time to fill gaps when when we notice them or when they're pointed out to us. So um, we've got discussions going on in the background at the moment around establishing some kind of uh, Zoom managers level kind of networking forum group because we've had uh, one, like we've had someone say that they think that's something that would be really useful. So we're kind of looking into how that might work and where that might fit within our structures. Um, and we've got actually, we've had loads of new groups start up kind of this year, really. So quite varied ones like we have a social science group that's just getting started underneath the kind of research committee and aquariums comms group for example because sometimes their kind of the aquarium challenges can be quite different to some of the other zoo sector challenges so we're kind of doing some work to try and make sure that our understanding of what's facing the aquariums particularly in this kind of public relations area um, that we're kind of much more up to date with that so I hope we kind of are but I guess my biggest message there would be that, like I said before, it is what you make of it. Like if you're working for a Biasa member or an associate member, you are Biasa. Like it's, it sometimes gets seen as being just us in the office or maybe just the trustees. It's definitely not. Like we very much see it as being everyone. So there is almost a responsibility on all the members as well to make sure that they are kind of engaging. And if they aren't getting something out of us, actually telling us what, they need so that we can look at how we put that in place and we'll never be able to be everything for everyone but generally we are very keen to make sure that everyone is getting something useful out of it so yeah just just come and talk to us we're we're generally very friendly people ah uh, cracking answer that's number one out of the way number two leads us to the change coming in the industry the the secretary of state guidelines coming in over a 100 page document full of everything from conservation to education to animal husbandry at its heart do you see Biaza adapting with this, evolving with this and embracing it at its, at its whole? Yeah. And to some extent, I think we, we almost do it a little bit ahead of that as well. And like, realistically, we probably are aware of, of some of these changes coming sooner than, than uh, maybe the kind of full sector is because we have built up these relationships, particularly through the pandemic. And like in terms of, for example, UK level policy, we have, fortnightly meetings with the DEFRA Zoo policy team now. So we do like have quite good communications to kind of know what's coming. But yeah, I mean, accreditation for us, it was already there. It was already happening. Biasa had wanted to do it for a long time, but certainly knowing that the kind of, there's been potentially a, quite a big change to the standards coming has certainly helped push that forwards to kind of actually, you know, now is the time to make sure that we're doing that um, and to make sure that our members are, you know, or basically already above those standards anyway, so that we don't need to worry so much about what's in the standards that we we know that actually our members, they're already smashing this. And most of the time they will be, but there's probably a few areas that maybe were a little bit more surprising that came up in the standards. 
And I think the other thing in terms of like the standards and how things are changing is obviously we have grown this public affairs role of Bayaza massively through the pandemic because it was just so essential. We pretty much put almost all of our our resources went on to either it wasn't public affairs it was the actual on the ground how do we manage this so we've really built up lots of relationships and we've definitely built the kind of the prominence of Bayaza to government I mean we actually do now get referenced in just just random MPs kind of talking in the house for example like it will it will come up on like a google alerts thing you're like well I didn't, didn't know that conversation was happening so there's that element too that we've kind of already evolved but we're definitely that's a definite ongoing focus to keep building that momentum and building that public affairs work so that actually we're almost kind of steering what that zoo licensing and and what the standards and various other things look like kind of going forwards as well so rather than just waiting and reacting that it's it's very much kind of proactive and and doing it first and actually pointing out that you know we as in the sector are the experts in this and actually you know we we can set these standards for ourselves and we can tell you what best practice is we don't need you to do that for us very nicely put a whole host of information chucked back there so thank you so much for answering that one and that leads us to number three now i'm going to jump in head first to this one so bear with me and that is we've talked about a whole host of other organizations from waza to eaza now biaza obviously is a membership base uh, organization, which means for anyone listening who is a member or is lining up to become a member um, of an organization, why should they pick Biaza and not simply just become a member of Iaza or Waza? Well, why is Biaza so special? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we like to pretend that we're not in competition with each other. and we, There's definitely much more focus on working together and collaborating, but yeah, some, sometimes zoos have limited resources and they have to they have to make a call. I guess what we would say is that there's some definite advantages to being the kind of the local zoo association. So obviously Iaza and Waza both do do great things in different areas. Iaza clearly, you know, with the, the kind of conservation breeding programs, that's hugely important. Um, and everyone should be very supportive of it. And Waza into like at the moment they're kind of pushing the global animal welfare standards across the zoo sector forwards massively. Um, and, you know, we've, we work with them on those things. So we are very much part of that. But there's definite advantages to being local. So that kind of uh, conversation that we just had about all that kind of public affairs and lobbying and those local, you know, relationships with the governments that are directly setting the legislation for our sector here in the UK and in Ireland, we have that to a level that the other organisations can't have um obviously iaza particularly it like has members that are also our members quite a lot of members that are also our members so they definitely are also doing public affairs work and we work with them a lot particularly on brexit things where actually like lots of the successes have been joint successes there's, there's no no arguing against that we wouldn't have been able to achieve half the things that we have done without also having had iaza working on it particularly from the, the eu side but there's some definite advantages to kind of having that really in-depth knowledge of what are the challenges specifically facing the UK and the Irish sector rather than the global sector? Because I think we can be quite proud that the UK and Ireland, actually, we have we have very high standards. Like we are world leading in our animal welfare standards and actually also in, in those other areas of research, education and conservation. We also have some of the most in-depth 
zoo licensing and zoo relevant legislation in the world as well. So it is quite a unique setting in in that sense. Like there isn't really anywhere else that has zoo licensing that works quite the way it does here. So there's some real advantages to that kind of local level knowledge. Um, I think also that there's probably, I don't know if there's more opportunities, but maybe easier opportunities for more staff of our members to get involved in what we do, even because of practical reasons, like that our meetings are much more local to you probably than a lot of the ones which might be being held, you know, across Europe or even even further for Waza ones. So there's an element of it's maybe a little bit more achievable and practical to be able to get involved with what we do. And also like you would never run out of opportunities for things to contribute to within Biasa, for sure. Really well battled through that one. You've made it through and we've got to that next question. And that is, with Biasa, do you feel you're meeting the needs of all taxonomic groups? And that varies between mammals to birds to reptiles to invertebrates to fish. Are you meeting the needs for all taxes and what they, they're after from Biasa? I think mostly we are. I definitely think, I think with all things, like, especially if you looked at like social media content and stuff, maybe there, pro- there probably is still a mammal bias sometimes. And some of that isn't just us. It's also like some of our social media content is driven by what the press releases are that we get sent from the members and things like that. But in terms of the actual like kind of support resources and, and husbandry, I think, you know, we have the taxonomic working groups for all of them. Obviously, subgroup wise, that there are subgroups for some taxa and not for others, but that's very much driven by what the membership has told us they want and they need. So some of them have been set up for a specific issue that needed support with or others. There's been some really dedicated people that just wanted a group for that. So there might be some variation in terms of like, you know, at a specific point in time, one group might be a bit more active than the others. But I think overall we work quite hard to try and make sure that all taxa are kind of represented and i think if there is again it's just a kind of shout out that if there is any like kind of more you know beyond the kind of broader bird mammal taxa if people want a more specific subgroup in something then they should definitely always come and talk to us because you know we're we're generally kind of looking for people who are willing to kind of put some time into helping create new resources our care sheets for example now all have um, this kind of fixed review process so we're always looking for more people to review and i think sometimes for some of the traditionally less popular but actually often more popular with keepers sometimes like if you think about like reptiles and amphibians the keepers are often very very passionate but there's maybe a smaller number of them and so it sometimes can take them a little bit longer to get their care sheets through the process because they don't have as many people that are currently volunteering to do the review and that means you know it just takes time because the people on the working groups themselves there's only so much that they could do given that they're doing it on top of their actual jobs as well so I think where there are gaps, it's it's probably as much that we need the membership to come in and help us fill them. But hopefully it's pretty well balanced. Absolutely. An all for one and one for all approach I could not agree more with. So very much so. Now, you'll be happy to know we're coming towards the close of these big questions onto that last one. And that leads us to a question which is becoming quite popular and quite relevant throughout these episodes. Our listeners will very much know this question by now. And that leads us to America, to the USA, about demographic surveys done of the keeping age, more importantly, the checkout age of the keepers over there. 
um, and it is roughly coming in around the early 30s. Now, this is an age roughly replicated for our R keeping staff over in the UK. Um, and we can easily link that to a whole bundle of things due to simply a change in life goals through to living costs and so on. So what I wanted to ask you was with this survey, with this question, can BRs a help at all to counteract this? And is is something that BRs is looking into? It's very close to my to my own heart. My my husband is a is a former zookeeper that very much left at this kind of age for reasons that would be very relevant connected to us wanting to kind of be able to own a home and and have a family um, and I kind of touched on that with that the International Women's Day reference like it was a challenge I was very aware of of how you know I knew I wanted a family how do I balance that against the demands of this career because for all that I said about flexibility jumping around the country isn't such an easy option uh, once you've kind of got that going on and like I know I've been very privileged to have some really great role models and, and kind of female leadership bosses that have really helped me work that out but more generally kind of for the sector and what, what can Bayaza do so it's something we definitely talk about I think actually that's quite important like I think the conversations have increased and have become much more honest and open and um, there was a really good talk at the annual conference that we we just had that was more specifically about well-being and, and keepers and um, but really delivered some fairly kind of hard-hitting statistics not just from the zoo sector but from kind of wider animal care sector in terms of like um, veterinary and farming but what those well-being impacts can be and also very much acknowledged actually we don't want to lose these experienced keepers from the sector that experience is important important um, and obviously there's all sorts of things from practical care that your animals get when you lose your experienced staff through to just the costs of recruitment and training new staff. So there's lots of reasons why we should be dealing with this issue. So in terms of what Bias was doing as kind of more practical, I mentioned things like International Women's Day. There's a definite kind of clear aim there to have these conversations, not just in the context of women. We do, we do bring men into that conference too and get them to express their opinions. But that kind of idea of like, where can we introduce kind of flexible working policies and, and family supporting policies that help people to still be able to kind of achieve that life stage if that's what they want whilst also working jobs that can't always be flexible they just they just can't you know the animals have to be fed and they have to be clean there's some limits on what can be done but really looking down at actually what is possible and what what's just excuses and um, so we've definitely started having those conversations kind of hr stuff isn't really within our remit it's not within the charitable aims and um, objectives like our legal charitable objectives for Biaza. so we can't jump into it fully head first if that makes sense but we do try to kind of do things that are useful around the edges as much as we can we have definitely also been working like i would say the the bigger bit that we can do is looking at this kind of upskilling and professionalization of the sector and i kind of mentioned that as being part of what i what i do so we're definitely working it's definitely a long-term aim to have zookeeping recognized for the kind of high skilled highly qualified role that it is and to move away from this idea that it's just manual labor that anyone can do i think we all know that that's definitely not true but there's clearly maybe less so within the industry itself but certainly like external externally people have that viewpoint still so lots of work from us around that with making quite small steps i mean we don't have huge kind of budget and that kind of stuff to deal with this but little things um are we became a practitioner member of the abtc the animal behavior training council who have these accredited animal training lists and then obviously we worked with our our working group there to set up the first and only currently um accredited zoo animal trainer 
course that allows you to be on their registered list when you completed it um, and we're building on that now so not only are they just looking at the moment of um, the recruitment of the next cohort of that with this aim that we'll have this network across the UK and Ireland of professionally recognised animal trainers in our zoos and we're now moving on to launch shortly the animal trainer instructor level so this actual kind of clear progression path onwards as well which you have to have done the animal trainer course first to be eligible for it but hopefully it's starting to build these ways that we can showcase and evidence actually how skilled a profession it is and hopefully that will have kind of knock-on impacts in terms of the kind of reflection of just how valuable our zookeepers are very much so and i think i speak on behalf of all the listeners and myself it's nice to know that someone's fighting the fight for us and trying to do best by our community so no very very nice to hear now this leads us away from the big questions we're on that final part of the episode and that is the quick fire round as our listeners will know it will either fly by or erupt into conversation so to kick us off first question for you is what is your favorite animal that's not a simple question is it for anyone that works with animals because there's loads and like i hate this question um so i mean generally i would say i am a bird and small mammal person particularly rodents bird is very much my husband's influence he's very much a bird keeper and like have one for if I'm really forced to pick one but really it changes all the time but the the one that stays stays with me all the time is the razor bill which isn't one that I've ever seen in a zoo or aquarium actually a great answer okay number two then what is your favorite thing and the best thing about the industry I think it's that it matters like the work that we do is you know it has greater meaning we're not just doing a job to earn money with you know, we're contributing to hopefully making the world a better place in the long term for, for animals and for people. Actually, I think we're increasingly aware of how important that is for people as well as for animals. So I think it's that that it's got this kind of greater meaning to what we do. Very much so. OK, the next one then is quite a large question. So I do apologise. What is your top tip for mental health and well-being? Yeah, it's a massive question. So I think I would say it's kind of like be proactive in looking after it like it's something that I'm really aware of I've I've had mental health challenges in my past and I would say like definitely don't don't wait until you're struggling to kind of think about it and put things in place to support you with it like do it now like you know find the things that help you feel calm or help you feel happy find the people that you know talking to makes you feel better about life and just get them integrated into what you do now so that it's kind of part of your life it really is about making sure that you take the time to look after yourself whilst you're in a position to do it rather than waiting until you're feeling pretty desperate but also if you do start to feel desperate like I mean definitely go and talk about it yeah very well put now reflecting a previous question what would you improve within the industry I think that it would be the kind of wider recognition of the value of the sector which you know hopefully is something that we're working on but I think we all kind of sometimes come across those cliches that are really black and white view of what zoos are I think that within the industry itself we've got this much greater understanding now actually of all the the different things that we do and that it's not you know we don't just do animals we don't just do conservation those are very important but there's lots of other things that we're doing too but it's that kind of wider recognition and sometimes it can be really frustrating when you come across it like on social media and it can be really 
annoying to find people that don't understand that and don't don't get it yet but obviously it's it's on us to to make that change and to talk and communicate more clearly about what we do to the public and to the policymakers so that you know I think one of the things we see a lot is that policymakers don't necessarily if they're thinking of like putting a conservation project in place or you know they don't necessarily think to come and speak to zoos about that we're, we're quite often brought in quite late at quite a late stage by kind of policymakers, so that kind of wider recognition and I think it will come yeah for sure fingers crossed now the next question could take us absolutely anywhere in the world and that is what zoo globally would you like to visit and why I'm not going to go that far away actually like I would say I've been quite lucky in that I've not been to that many zoos like kind of outside of the UK but I have been able to specifically go to quite a few that I wanted to so things like um the Singapore zoos Berlin Zoo Prague Zoo I have been able to do those ones Hamburg Zoo was one that I really wanted to do so I would say at the moment it's probably Vienna and that's because like I'm a I'm a little bit of a zoo nerd not not a really big one just a little bit of one but I find like the whole kind of the history and the development of what we now think of as being the modern zoo and even beyond kind of what's thought of as the modern zoo. I find that really interesting. Like I really like acknowledging where we've come from um, and kind of all the things that have been learned along the way. And obviously Vienna is, would argue it is the world's oldest modern zoo. So that one's pretty high up my list. A cracking zoo and a cracking choice. Very, very well put. Now you're probably the best person to ask this and that is, do you still see zoos, whether it be in the world or in the UK, the same as they are today in between 20 to 30 years? I think we'll definitely recognise them still as the zoos of today, but there'll definitely be changes. Of course, they will. Like best practice changes all the time and, and hopefully will kind of still be at the forefront of, of leading that here in, in the UK and Ireland. So there will be changes. There's obviously a lot more kind of tech now. So I'm sure that will definitely have an impact and whether we'll see more kind of like virtual reality or I think the core of who we are and what we do and that we look after animals to very high standards and we engage people to care about them and we use that to launch these this kind of greater conservation work and education I think that will still be there I guess one of the big things that I hope will come links to that what I was saying earlier about this kind of recognition of value like I I hope that we will become better at aligning ourselves with these kind of big global frameworks like the global biodiversity framework and really evidencing our impact and, and kind of showing this is who we are, this is our value that we bring to society and that we'll maybe have moved a little bit beyond this kind of our zoo's good or bad argument, but we'll we'll see. We will see indeed. Now we're on that second to last question. We're so, so close to the end. And this is going to dive a little bit more into your personal world. And that is within the industry, who is your idol? There's almost like two ways of looking at it. Like kind of there's like historic idols. I mentioned that I wanted to go to Hamburg. Like I definitely, as I said, I'm really interested in in kind of zoo history and the, the development. And, and one of the kind of people that I was interested in was um, Karl Hagenbeck. Um, and that kind of architectural revolution in, in zoo enclosure design that he brought in, um, which was why I wanted to go to Hamburg and, and see some of that in practice. So there's kind of that level of of idol, the kind of slightly more classic, cliched ones. Um, in terms of like actual like people that I interact with within the sector idols, I think, I don't know if I could specify like a specific 
like one person but as I mentioned before I've been really lucky to have some really strong women leaders and um, particularly like Bayasa has a very clear history of that at this stage you know we, we're on a run of kind of strong female CEOs and that's definitely influenced me and it's definitely helped me to be ambitious and helped me to see what I can achieve um, and they've been like they've been incredibly supportive and very good mentors along the way you know I can think about like you know Kirsten Pullen um, who actually you know she taught me back when I was doing my master's and then was my my first boss at at Bayaza and you know I'm still in touch with her fairly regularly now um Joe my current boss is also superb um, but there's probably also some people that would never they would have no idea that the impact they had on me kind of along the way so I won't go for her full name but I will give a little shout out to Katie who I worked with at Bristol Zoo who was probably the first person that I sort of stepped back and watched really manage being an on-the-ground zoo staffer whilst also raising a family and I went is possible to do both of these things and to make both of that work so kind of for a very personal reason she would be something of an idol as well some really lovely and really nice words there so thank you very much for sharing that now this leads us to the final question of this podcast episode and i would now want you probably one of the hardest questions to ask of all to sum up this whole industry the whole zoo industry in its entirety in only three words exciting important pick one just one more progressive really nicely summed up there three words to really bring this whole industry together now before we do conclude i'm just going to chuck the platform at yourself for anyone listening who's a biaza member and maybe not optimizing their membership well enough or for anyone looking to become a biaza member what would you like to say to them yeah so definitely for the ones that are already members and, and not optimizing i would definitely kind of throw in uh, that thing of you know just come and get involved like there will be something that you are passionate about something that you are really good at that skills that we'll be able to use come and bring them to us let us work with you to really kind of maximize that and and share your impact for the the wider sector and for those that aren't there yet I guess I would just say like you know keep keep plugging away keep thinking about it keep you know trying to get involved um it is actually possible to be on our committees and our working groups as a non-member as well we have co-opted spaces so where there's something that you've got a lot of expertise to share definitely don't think that the fact that you're not currently working for a member isn't you know is a barrier to that you know with overall really we're all here for the same purpose it's all kind of for this this greater good of improving animal welfare and improving our impact on on everything else so you know still come and talk to us and where we can we will find ways for you to be involved um but obviously also i would say you know hit up hit up the zoo bosses and and keep pointing out all the good stuff Biaza does and all that you know that policy level work obviously is very important to CEOs so especially that look out for those there's loads of blogs on it now on the website just keep gently throwing them at your your bigger uh, decision makers if you're not the one that gets to make the call what a great and fitting way to pull this whole episode to a close I just wanted to say on behalf of myself and the listeners thank you so much for coming on sharing everything Biaza and everything for yourself and your own journey. It's been a real, real privilege. And yeah, a massive thank you from from all of us. Thank you very much. It's been very enjoyable, James. Hopefully we'll get you on again very, very soon. <laughs> yeah. Bye. And that concludes this week's episode. What an amazing guest and an amazing time we had. Now, if you have enjoyed it, please do subscribe on Instagram, Facebook, or our podcast channels to Zookeeping 101. 
I can't express how thankful I am personally from a fellow zookeeper to have you along for this quite amazing journey learning about everything zookeeper. Otherwise, please subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you very, very soon. Bye.